Oh, holy God, you are the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Your name is holy. You revive the spirit of the lowly in the hearts of the contrite. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would revive our spirits right now. You would quiet our souls so that you can feed us from your word. Open the hearts and minds of these women, Father, that they may hear a specific word from you that meets them in the place of their deepest need. And Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, for I delight to revere your name. Empty me of all of me and fill me with the fullness of your spirit, that I might speak forth your word with power and accuracy. This I ask in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Have you ever been clueless, confused, or conflicted about God's will for your life? What have you done to discover his will for you? Every time I prepare to teach God's word, I'm wondering in the back of my mind, Oh, God, are you sure you want me to do that? Me? You see, before God called me to teach, I had uh, hardly any experience teaching, especially adults. And I had very limited experience speaking in public. But God never fails to quickly answer my doubts and insecurities by reminding me that this is his will for me. He assures me that he will then give me everything that I need to do it. So how did I discover that this was God's will for me? While this is not always the case, for me it took a very long time. It was not an immediate answer to prayer or to a plea to God. For over 10 years I studied God's word and I sought to apply it to my life. I sought to walk in obedience to God's will that's found in his word. As I did, I began to let go of a lot of my fleshly desires to embrace more and more God's desires. I began to pray for my will to be aligned with God's. God changed my heart so profoundly that I came to want only what God wants. I would pray, oh God, may my only will be your will. Then one day I was doing my Bible study and there was a question that asked, what is God's will for your life? What is his purpose for you? Well, I wanted to know what God thought about that, so I asked him. After I prayed, I lifted my head and immediately caught sight of all the books in a bookcase right next to where I sat. It was filled with only two kinds of books, cookbooks and Bible study books. It became very clear that God has called me to feed his sheep physically and spiritually. Um, he has continued for over 15 years to give me one opportunity after another to do just that, feed his people physically and spiritually. Knowing God's will for my life has given me the confidence, the strength, and the endurance that I need to boldly live for him, especially when it's hard, challenging, or even seems impossible. 
The same is true for all believers or those who are in Christ. We certainly see that that is true for Paul. The truth that we will examine in Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through 3, is that knowing God's will emboldens believers to live for him. We have two divisions, God's will and God's willingness. Um, Our first division is God's will, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. So if you'll open your Bibles, we don't have to follow very far because we have a few short verses. But verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. As Paul greets the recipients of his letter, he identifies himself as the author, as an apostle of Christ Jesus, and as one called by the will of God. God's purposes for Paul are emphasized here. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means he has the authority to boldly speak for Jesus. He needs to emphasize this because Paul was the most unlikely of apostles. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he says that he is abnormally born as an apostle. Paul, also known as Saul, was transformed by the will of God. This man, who was a Pharisee among Pharisees, what I call a super Jew, passionate for keeping and enforcing God's law. In zeal, he chased down and persecuted Christians. As you did your lesson this week, you read that he even stood by, nodding in approval, as Stephen was stoned, Stephen, that precious follower of Christ. Paul never forgot how he was completely transformed when he was claimed by God's good and perfect will. Knowing God's will emboldened Paul to live for God. Likewise, knowing God's will emboldens believers to live for him. This part of verse 1 is where we see our doctrine this week, the will of God. God's will emphasizes God's purposes. Now, many Christians get what I, say, what I call balled up. They get all balled up or preoccupied, obsessed, confused with this doctrine. They're thinking, what does it mean? Can I figure out his will for me? What if I don't want to do what God has willed for me? Or is my suffering part of God's will? So it is helpful to stop and define what the doctrine of God's will means. R.C. Sproul writes, The Bible is deeply concerned about the will of God, his sovereign authority over his creation and everything in it. Sproul teaches that there are two different aspects to God's will. First is his decretive will. This is also referred to as God's secret or hidden will. This aspect of God's will refers to his sovereign power over all things. By decree, that's where we get the word decretive, all things happen or don't happen. God is sovereign in control at all times. Therefore, what he wills to happen, happens. His will cannot ever be thwarted or frustrated. 
And anything that happens, he either causes to happen or he permits to happen. He always has the power and the right to intervene and prevent actions and events in this world. Often, God's will is secret or hidden from us until after it unfolds. We can look back and go, oh, I see what God was doing there. Many Christians spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out the secret will of God. R.C. Sproul says that the quest for God's secret will is an unwarranted invasion of God's privacy. John Calvin also offers some wise counsel for us, saying, When God closes his holy mouth, I will desist from inquiry. It is far, far better, ladies, that we spend our time and energy seeking to know and obey God's revealed will. This is the second aspect of God's will, his preceptive will, or his will revealed in the precepts of the Bible. So wonder no more, ladies. God's will is made plain to us in the Bible. God's will reveals, uh, God reveals his will to us in his word as well as in our consciences where he has written his moral law upon our hearts. He gives us the power or the ability to choose what we will do with his preceptive will. Will we trust him and obey him, his laws, his commands? Or will we choose to sin by disobeying the revealed will of God? He permits us to choose. But Sproul says that his permission gives us the power, but not the right to sin. He goes on to say that God's sovereign permission of human sin is not his moral approval. And I would add an important reminder Believers have the Holy Spirit of God living in them, giving them the power to not sin. We can choose to not sin. God's will for, for you, for me, for every one of his children is that we walk by the Spirit, pursue holiness, and live in obedience to every word that comes from God's mouth. This is why studying and applying the Bible is so important for every believer. If you want to seek and do God's will, this right here is a great place to start. And it's a great place to continue until the day you die. The Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches that we exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, we do both when we meditate upon and obey God's preceptive will, revealed in his word and seared on our consciences. Often we only discover God's decretive or secret will as we trust and obey God's preceptive will in his word. In other words, obeying God's revealed will opens our hearts and minds to know God's decretive will for our lives. When God reveals his will or his purpose for your life, he gives you a confidence that only comes from the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to 
that will. This is how knowing God's will emboldens believers to live for him. The power of God's will gave Paul a single-minded gospel focus, a burning passion, and an unwavering faith to serve as an apostle of Christ Jesus. It fueled his tireless work planting churches and ministering to the body of Christ with visits and letters. Paul lived boldly for God, even when he was persecuted and imprisoned as he was when he was writing this epistle. The second part of verse 1 says, um, Paul penned this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Scholars believe that this letter was meant to be circulated among the churches in Asia Minor. Paul is writing to believers, mainly Gentile believers. This is what he means by the word saints. All believers are saints. Literally, they are holy ones, set apart by God for God. Believers are also called the faithful in Christ Jesus. So it's clear that Paul is writing to believers. Um, In Acts chapter 19, we're told that Paul stayed in Ephesus for about three years. This was the longest stay of all his many missionary journeys. He stayed for so long because there were so many ministry opportunities there. He taught God's word daily to a hungry crowd of saints. While the will of God transformed him into an apostle and transported him to to Ephesus, it does not mean that his ministry was easy. Acts chapter 20 verse 19 says that he served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. Opportunities to serve God often involve great opposition. This is why it is vitally important for you to pray for your pastors and pray for those you know who are in the mission field. Another important lesson that we learn from Paul's example here is that when difficulty accompanies your obedience, it does not necessarily mean that you have moved out of God's will. Walking in the center of God's will does not mean that you will avoid opposition. In fact, it almost guarantees that you will face opposition. Paul went to Ephesus as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And he was met with fierce spiritual warfare. Ephesus was a city famous for paganism rooted in the Greek philosophy of true enlightenment and mysterious knowledge. The culture was permeated with materialism, idol worship, and ritual sexual perversion. The emperor cult was so prominent in the life of all the citizens of the Roman Empire that they called Caesar Augustus their savior. The citizens of Ephesus proclaimed the gospel of Augustus, while Paul and the Christian church proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesus was also the headquarters of the cult of Diana or Artemis, a Roman goddess. 
In Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41, we learn that Paul's bold gospel message threatened the business of the silversmiths who fashioned silver statues of Diana. God's will for his servant Paul was not easy. It required Paul to boldly engage in spiritual warfare, fighting against demonic opposition and hardened hearts. In Ephesians chapter 6, he speaks to us about engaging in spiritual warfare. And we would do well to listen carefully when we get there because this is a battle that Paul knew very well. Yet Paul's passion, it never weakened. His faith, it never wavered. Daily, he persisted in teaching God's word and sharing the gospel with great boldness because he knew without a doubt that his ministry was God's will for him. To the saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus, living in pagan Ephesus, Paul writes in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you feel the winds of spiritual refreshment? Grace to you, peace. Paul often saturated his messages with grace, praying for his brothers and sisters in Christ to know, to understand, and to trust in God's grace. Grace is a prominent theme in Ephesians. The word appears 12 times in this one letter or epistle. Grace, God's unmerited and unearned favor. By grace, through faith, we receive the gift of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And because of his perfect atoning sacrifice, we have peace with God. Paul prays for God to give the Ephesian believers his peace. Peace is another prominent theme in Ephesians. Read aloud to the churches of Asia Minor, Paul's epistle opens with a prayer for grace and peace to come to them from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul's letter continues... Watch for how he paints a magnificent picture of God the Father and a majestic picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul, by the will of God, came to Ephesus to preach the good news of the gospel and proclaim God's grace and peace to the saints there. This was soul food for famished Saints, it is still soul food for famished saints. It is also soul food for lost souls. For these reasons, it is God's will for believers to pursue holiness and advance the gospel. That's our first truth. It is God's will for you to pursue holiness and advance the gospel. Do you want to know what God's will is for you? Start here. It is God's will for you to pursue holiness, 
First Peter 1, 15 through 16 says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And it is God's will for you to advance the gospel. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus gave his disciples, including every believer from that time on, he gave them and us the great commission, saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. What are you doing in your daily life to pursue holiness and advance the gospel? What could you do differently to ensure that you are increasingly accomplishing these two things that are God's will for you? Pray for the Holy Spirit to help you pursue holiness and advance the gospel. Surrender to God. Ask him to help you make measurable, positive progress toward reaching these two goals. Add 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 and Matthew 28, 19 through 20 to your scripture-soaked prayer. Paul goes on to teach us about our position in Christ and our practice because of our position in Christ. But verse 3 opens this section about our position in Christ. And even though it is marked as one verse in our Bibles, in Greek, verse 3 is actually the opening to a 202-word long sentence that does not end till we get to verse 14. Paul is so blown away by God's blessings that he doesn't stop to take a breath. He doesn't stop to punctuate. And he starts off by praising God for his willingness to bless his people. Our second division is God's willingness, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Verse 3 reads, Blessed be the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul opens his amazing sentence about our spiritual blessings in Christ with a doxology or a song of praise. He cannot help but praise the Lord. Now note that Paul praises God the Father. This is the first person of the Trinity, the creator and sustainer of all things and the judge of all. God has eternally been the father of the Son, who is the second person of the Trinity. And he also condescends or humbles himself to be the father of all who believe in him. This is a stunning truth to ponder every day. The sovereign God of the universe is our Father. Not to all people, but only to those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. 
John 1, 12 through 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The one who created all things and sovereignly reigns over all things and sustains all things calls us his dearly beloved children in Christ. If you are in Christ, he is your father. By his will, you are his adopted and beloved child. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba. Father, our spiritual blessings, they flow from the enormously generous heart of our heavenly Father. Because he is our Father, he willingly blesses us with a mind-boggling fullness of spiritual blessings. This is a fullness that only he can give, and he does so willingly. John chapter 1 verse 16 says, From his fullness we have all received, past tense, grace upon grace. That little phrase, I always think of just waves of grace washing over us continually. He is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides for his children This is a name for God that is rooted in Genesis chapter 22, verses 13 and 14, which recount Abraham's obedience to God in sacrificing his one and only beloved son, Isaac. Isaac was the child of the promise, God's promise to save us from our sin. Yet God promised, God commanded Abraham to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. But Abraham knew God. He'd been walking with him for a long time. He trusted God, so he obeyed God. Trusting that God had the power to raise Isaac from the dead, Abraham obediently prepared to sacrifice Isaac. At the very moment, he raised his hand to kill his son. An angel of the Lord stopped him. When Abraham looked up, He saw God had provided a ram caught in the thicket by thorns, by his horns, like a crown of thorns around its head. Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, saying, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Centuries later, the Lord again provided on Mount Moriah. This time he provided the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, Jesus Christ. With a thorn of crowns encircling his head, he died in our place in obedience to his Father's will. As the perfect Lamb of God, he is the sufficient sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul marvels at the God who provides, saying, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all 
things. Indeed, Paul says that he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh, the fullness of our spiritual blessings. Our minds struggle to comprehend them, much less take possession of them. Paul goes on to list our spiritual blessings in verses 4 through 14. But we're going to take a slow walk through them, a more in-depth look at these blessings in later lessons. For now, we need a clear understanding of what kind of blessings Paul is talking about and where they are right now. Paul says that God has blessed us in Christ. The word us refers to the church with a capital C, the universal church. Paul praises God because of his sovereign activity in the church, birthing it, growing it, sustaining it. Then Paul says that the church has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, there are different views about what the phrase in the heavenly places means. If you were here on Sunday, Richard Harris says that it means heaven, right? They're in heaven. But I liked what theologian Brian Chappell said. He said, heavenly places is the spiritual realm, like radio waves all around us. Commentator Tony Meredith said that this reveals the already not yet aspect of our salvation. He says, now, right now, we are linked with the heavenly realms because of our relationship with God. We have the benefits of salvation now, but we also anticipate them in the future when we will praise him with all the nations. The important truth to note is that these blessings are spiritual, not material or physical. Now, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, he can provide material or physical blessings. But we're talking about spiritual blessings here. And they belong to all who are in Christ, meaning all believers. And all believers are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every single one. In Christ, we have access to all of these blessings right now. And it is God's will for you to possess by faith every spiritual blessing from his hand. That's our second truth. It is God's will for you to possess by faith every spiritual blessing from his hand. How does this truth Change how you view blessings from God. What will you do differently to live as if you do possess by faith every spiritual blessing from God? If you have received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior by grace through faith, you are in Christ. You are God's child, a co-heir with God's son, Jesus. Spiritually, you are indescribably wealthy, blessed beyond measure, filled with all the fullness of God. These truths should transform how you think, speak, and act. Take time these next few weeks to prepare your soul to study these spiritual blessings in depth. 
Pray for God to give you spiritual insight so that you might be able to understand his promises, his character, and his blessings found in his word. It is God's will for you to possess by faith every spiritual blessing from his hand. If you are not yet in Christ, ask the Holy Spirit of God to open your eyes, ears, and mind to his truth as you study these incredible spiritual blessings. It is God's will for you to possess by faith every spiritual blessing from his hand. Are you still clueless, confused, or conflicted about God's will for your life. Take time to make a prayerful inventory. Ask yourself, what do I know to be true about God's character? Do I know him well enough to trust him? What do I know about God's will for me to be holy? Have I obeyed what I know? How am I applying it to my life? And here's the kicker. Which commands of God am I still not heeding? Ask God to give you his insight into your identity in Christ that you might know who you are, whose you are, his direction for your life, and his purpose in your life. Seeking God's perceptive or revealed will is as simple as three words, trust and obey. Seeking God's decretive or secret will can be a bit more complicated. You see, our own thoughts, plans, desires, our own will can cause us to doubt, question, and become confused. Four years ago, God called me out of a teaching ministry where he had grown the class over 10 years from 150 women to 600. As I responded to his call, I felt that he was calling me away from there to this ministry so that he could grow it. Thus far, look around. The growth has been a bit unstable. Either I heard God wrong, always possible, Or he has something else in mind. Or he and I are playing the long game. I don't know how long I'll be here, but y'all better invite your friends because I can't leave till he grows it. Could be. All I know that is it is good to wait for God's confirmation with an open mind, knowing that if his will is something different, I can surrender to it. When striving to know and do God's will, it is always wise to be ready to pivot. No matter what happens, though, I will strive to trust him and obey him so that I might live boldly for his praise and his glory. Ultimately, that is God's will for every one of you. And knowing God's will emboldens you as believers to live for him. Trust Obey. Boldly live for him. It really is as simple as that. Please pray with me. Oh, Jehovah Jireh, you are the God who unfailingly provides us with all we need. You are our strength, our sustainer, our glory, and our shield, the lifter of our heads. 
Your extravagant provision humbles us as it is given to us out of your bounteous grace and steadfast love. May our souls praise you, the Lord our God, for you are good, you are gracious, and you are merciful. By your good and perfect will, O God, you are transforming us. Holy Spirit, help us to bow in humility and respond in obedience to all your sanctifying work. We lift our souls up to you and offer this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our precious Lord and Savior. Amen.